not a scientist, don't claim to be one. I just um, am the recipient of all of the, the laws of, of in the world, okay? I'm a, I'm a recipient of the law of gravity. I'm standing here before you right now. I'm not floating away. And, uh, and so I like science, but from a distance, okay, from a distance. Um, so I want to read to you just some of the qualifications of our speaker this morning. He is more than qualified to speak to you on this topic. Over the past 20 years, his research has won numerous awards, and he continues with active research. He's a nationally and internationally known scientist and researcher. He has won the equivalent, get this, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in his field twice. He uh, has published over 50 journal articles and textbook chapters and is an editor of two journals. With regards to our topic today, he was asked to speak at a Millennial International Symposium on Science and the Bible in the year 2000. And then also, a few years ago, he spoke at Harvard regarding the Bible and also the Da Vinci Code. And last but not least, most importantly, he is married to, I'm reading off the page here, okay, I did not write this. He's married to the most beautiful person in the world. All right, and uh, you guys might know him as uh, David and Rebecca's dad, but it's Dr. Bob Weber. Come on up, Bob. Give him a hand. Well, good morning. It's not that often that I get to come and talk to you, and gave me the opportunity to come by and talk about science in the Bible. That's how I felt. And any time we're going to talk about science in the Bible, there's going to be all sorts of different experiments and things and flashes as we go through the talk, so be ready. Um, As Dave mentioned, I am a hand surgeon. I've done work in peripheral nerve research and repair and the growth on both the cellular level and on a nerve reconstruction level. And one of the things that I do with that as a hand surgeon is put parts back on. Okay, so if you've had something cut off, one of, the, one of my jobs is, is to put it back on. In fact, just this past week, there was a gentleman that we had to put his thumb back on. And so that's what I do. This is better? Okay, thank you, sir. Well, when I first moved to Texas, I, I'm from Philadelphia. We were up in the Dallas area, and... Uh, driving, there, there, there are highways that go between Fort Worth and Dallas, and at the time they were being constructed and there were some potholes, and we were driving uh, up and then from Fort Worth to Dallas over. I'm sure you guys know that area better than I do. But we were driving, and a ambulance went by us at a very high rate of speed, and we were going along behind it, and the ambulance hit a pothole and had a very big bump, and the back door opened up, and an igloo cooler came bouncing out of the ambulance. And so, being a medical person, I thought, well, well, they probably need that igloo. So we kind of slowed down, pulled over, found the igloo by the side of the road, and being a curious person, opened it up. And inside was a nice, large toe. A person's toe had been cut off, and they were obviously being. Dave 
has that set up. If there are cameras in here, and if there's a certain number of people that are nodding off, the camera detects those faces that are falling asleep and does things like that. So, anyway, we were driving, and we found the igloo cooler with the tow in it. And my wife was with me, and she looked at it and said, what are we going to do with this? What, you know, what, what, how are we going to help this person? What in the world are we going to do? And immediately I knew what to do. I said, we're going to call a tow truck. Let's talk about Galileo. Galileo was born in 1564. This is where we can do the next slide. And I will tell you now, and it looks like you'll need a 10-minute warning before each slide comes up. So go ahead and switch now. Galileo was born in 1564. He was Italian, and in fact, he was born in the town of Pisa, Italy. Now, who knows what's in Pisa? Not pizza. Pizza is P-I-Z-Z-A. Pizza is P-I-S-A. Somebody else. What was it? Right. The Leaning Tower of Pizza. Well, Pizza. (laughs) Well, actually, the tower was leaning over when Galileo was born. So it was was already kind of bending over when he was born. He was born. His father was a court musician. His mother was a homemaker. He was the oldest of six children. And as he was growing up, he showed some interest in reading. He showed some interest in math. Now, it's not like they had books lying around all over the table. You know, Dr. Seuss, Hop on Top was not available. But they did have the Bible. And he had an opportunity to kind of look through that. And the bottom line was, is Galileo was that kind of smart, know-it-all kid. Um, You may know people like that. And that's what he was like. And so at age 11, being born in a good Catholic family, uh, a family that had a high regard for the church and spiritual principles and Christianity, what you would do is if you had someone who was showing signs of intelligence, if you had shown someone who had... um, signs of being able to work things out, you would send them to a monastery because that's where the initial schools were. And so at age 11, they sent Galileo to a monastery. And while he was at a monastery, he was getting smarter, learned that he liked mathematics, and at that point really felt that he wanted to go and become a priest. Now, that's not what his father necessarily had in mind for him. His father wanted him to go into something that would make a little bit more money. He wanted his, his father wanted him to be a doctor. And so at age 17, they transferred him from the monastery to the university. And the university in Florence was one of the top universities at the time. And at the time, the university would teach you basically reading and writing, but more than just your ability to write your name, but it was actually the ability to write in a persuasive way. It would teach you Latin and Greek so that you could read the old scholars. It would teach you mathematics because it was important to know mathematics in order to mechanically build a church or build roads. 
And it would teach you a little bit about philosophy. And that was the essential university course at the time. Well, Galileo, being the smart guy that he was, really, really liked mathematics. And in fact, in his 20s, had gotten to the point where he realized that mathematics kind of explained most of the things that he was looking at. And one day, he was sitting in church, and he noticed the um, chandelier hanging from the center of the cathedral. And it was a long uh, chandelier made of iron, had about 20 candles in it. And during the service, he would just watch it kind of swing back and forth. And one day he had the idea of just timing how long it takes to go from one side to the other. So using his pulse as the equivalent of a stopwatch, he timed it and realized it took about six beats to go one way, six beats to go the other. Now at the time, people really didn't understand the principles of a pendulum. There's a lot about science and about mathematics that we take for granted today that was just being worked out. And he had the idea, he was kind of fascinated, well, what happens if I take that pendulum and I, and instead of going from one side of the room to the other, what if I only make it move at a couple of inches? Will it move faster? Well, what he found out is that as long as the length of the pendulum is the same, it doesn't matter whether the arc is 15 feet or 15 inches, it takes the same amount of time to make one unit. Now, I'm sure you all find that fascinating since the clocks that you use are all built onto your iPhone. But back then, that made a huge difference. There were no timepieces yet. And it was from that that Galileo began to develop what turned into be the first watch. And that was the beginning of his, of his life of experimentation and observation. He loved mechanical devices. He would go to the shipyard in the area. And if he could drive one of the naval officers, he would play with the cannons and shoot the balls in different arcs and kind of measure how far they would go based on the angle. And whether it was a big ball or a little ball, how far it would go. And all sorts of different things. So he was very mechanically inclined, very mathematically inclined. And it was at this point that he decided to begin to test the prevailing wisdom at the time. Now, up to that point, there, our understanding of science, our understanding of physics, our understanding of the world was still based on Aristotle. And Aristotle was born, you know, hundreds of years before Christ. And according to their thinking at the time, if you took a heavy ball and a light ball and dropped them, which do you think would hit the ground first? Exactly, it hit the same. But see, they didn't know that back then. Back then, it was thought that the heavier ball would travel faster and hit the ground before the light ball. And he said, well, let's just find out if that's true. So this idea of proposing an experiment and then observing the results in order to figure out whether something is true or not was rather innovative. So he said, where can I go back to to do this? He realized back in his hometown there was this thing that kind of looked like a wedding cake that was tilted over. So he took a whole bunch of balls and went up onto the seventh uh, tier, about 150 feet from the ground. From the ground, 
And he began doing these observations, and he had some of his students. By this time, he was a professor at the university. He had some of his students on the ground nearby, not so close that he would hit them. And he would take these two balls, and he dropped them at the same time. And lo and behold, Aristotle was wrong. All the learned people in the world were wrong. Everybody who had been teaching, all the great minds of the time who had been teaching that if you drop a heavier ball and a light ball, the heavier ball is going to drop first, was wrong. Because they both hit the ground at the same time. So he did a bunch of different experiments with a bunch of different sizes and weights and everything. And the bottom line is he really showed that Aristotle's understanding of physics and the universe was not correct. It was flawed. And such was that period of time. Because we're talking about the late 1500s and the early 1600s. This was the period of the scientific revolution. How many of you played Civilization, the, the, the computer game, Civilization? Seriously? I'm the only one? It's a pretty cool game. Anyway, since none of you play it, I will skip that analogy. And we will just talk about the scientific revolution. Before this time, for centuries, the source of truth, the source of knowledge was the infallible Pope and the Church. Now, again, to our mind, that seems a little unusual and unstrange. But the Church was the source of knowledge back then, and that was important. That was a good thing. If you remember, during the Middle Ages... During the Middle Ages, there was all sorts of disease and famine. Back in the 1200s, if you were to go through Europe, one-fourth of all of Europe's population died because of the plague. Okay? There were not a whole lot of people who could read or write. It was difficult just to live during the Middle Ages. There were all sorts of sectarian wars going on. There was not enough luxury, there was not enough wealth for people to do anything other than live on a farm. And so the fact that the church was around was a good thing. Because the church was the keeper of knowledge. The church was the one that from generation to generation passed on the ability to read and write. Passed on the ability to understand all the ancient writings. The libraries were in churches. Universities were founded by churches as a means for training their priests and people who would go into the priesthood. The early hospitals were founded by the church because it was an outward manifestation of Christ's ministry here on earth. If Christ was a physician, then we as the church should be about hospitals. So if you think about that time of the Middle Ages, the two great centers of knowledge, the two great areas that we would call scientific today, both the university and a hospital were all founded by the church. And it was the church that was the source of ultimate authority. How did you know something was true or not? Well, if the church taught it, if the Bible taught it, if the Pope taught it, it had to be true. And everything else had to be measured by that. In fact, if you were to have a conversation between science and the Bible back then, the statement would have been, I don't understand how you can claim to be a man of learning and still practice natural philosophy. You see, because if you were educated, 
If you were a person who knew things, if you were a person of learning, you believed the Bible, you believed the church's teaching. This idea of natural philosophy, that was way out there. The idea that somehow we were smarter than God and could figure things out on our own. The idea of reason was put in in second place. And so that's the culture in which Galileo was doing his experimentations. In 1604, he developed the telescope. Now, optics had been developed before then, and there was an optician in the Netherlands called Huygens who developed lenses, but Galileo put them together with one lens on one side of a tube, one lens on another side of a tube. And you can go to the next slide. It'll take about ten minutes. And using this telescope, he began to see things that nobody had seen before because they didn't have the ability. He looked up into the heavens. And he was the first one to see the fact that Saturn had rings. His most important observation, though, was looking at Jupiter. The first time he looked at Jupiter, he saw Jupiter, and he saw these four dots around it. One dot was on one side, three dots were on the other side. He looked the next week and saw something different. He saw Jupiter, and this time all four dots were on the same side. He looked a couple of weeks later, saw Jupiter, two dots on one side, two dots on the other. And with his understanding of mathematics and his observations, he realized Jupiter had four moons revolving around it. And that was the first time that anybody had the idea of bodies revolving around another body. Now you know what's coming next. Galileo was not the first person to suggest that the earth revolved around the sun. That was Copernicus a couple hundred years earlier. Copernicus got in trouble with the church because he did that. Galileo was the first person to be able to actually have some evidence for that. He could look at Jupiter and he could explain how things orbit. He could look at the earth and explain how things orbit. And because of those observations, Galileo then wrote his famous paper which talks about the earth revolving around the sun. Now he was in trouble. In 1616, he was called before the Pope and said, You cannot teach this. Why? What was the problem? Next slide. Well, the problem was, if you read the Bible, and you come to some places in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 93.1 and 96, it says, The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Elsewhere, the Lord set the earth on on its foundations. It can never be moved. And even in Ecclesiastes, it is showing the sun rising and sets and returns to its place. So if you read those verses, what is it teaching us? These verses tend to suggest that the earth stands still and everything else revolves around it. And so what Galileo was proposing was this idea that somehow the Bible is wrong. And there, in its essence, is the problem. What do we do when what we see with our own eyes contradicts what we find written in Scripture? 
Because clearly we know now the Bible's wrong. The world can be moved. The world does move. Earth revolves around the sun. The sun doesn't rise and set. The earth is rotating. So we have two problems. We have, number one, the earth is revolving around the sun, and the earth itself is rotating. Two things in direct contradiction to what Scripture is teaching. And by this time, there was overwhelming evidence. There, was, there were all sorts of different experiments that were being done to show that the earth rotates. There were all sorts of experiments that could show that the earth was revolving around the sun. And so the bottom line was, is the Bible was shown to be wrong. Because the Bible says the earth never moves. And so that's where we stand in the 1600s. We've got this problem of science telling us one thing and the Bible telling us the other. And for centuries then, we've had this problem of what do you do when science tends to tell us one thing and the Bible tends to tell us another. In fact, if you go through and you were to talk to people today, and we don't have time for this now, but if you were to talk about it at your table and ask people, what's the number one reason why young people today have a hard time believing the Bible? The number one reason is because the Bible seems to contradict science. How can I be taught evolution in school? How can it be all these people in the universities and our schools are telling us about evolution and yet that seems to go against what the Bible is teaching? How can I believe in the Bible when it talks about a person walking on water, when it talks about walking around a city and blowing horns and walls fall down? How can I be a Christian when the Bible is filled with so many scientific inaccuracies such as miracles? It's a problem. You see, because what has happened is, as, as we have become, quote-unquote, smarter we're beginning to wonder what is it that man can't figure out. You see, because if we go back and we then follow the rest of Galileo's course, because after Galileo, you had all, other, you had all sorts of people going on, namely Newton. Newton was about the same time as Galileo, and Newton began to figure out a lot of the physical laws of the universe. If that pool table was working... You could take two pool, two pool balls on there, and you could put one, one ball into the other. And using mathematics and physics, you could explain exactly what was going to happen to those two balls. Add a third ball. Add more math, and you can explain everything. Add any number of physical balls hitting each other, and you can explain all sorts of things using the laws of physics and math. Well, if you take enough balls and put them together, it kind of looks like an atom. If you put some rubber bands around the balls, you begin to have the various chemical forces. And if we can understand what happens with cue balls on a pool table, it's not too hard to begin to understand what happens with atoms in a molecule. And so we begin to understand more about chemistry and how various elements work together to make various chemical compounds. Well, if you take some special chemical compounds that are based on carbon, they tend to make chains, make these larger molecules. You begin to get into biochemistry, and it's not too much of a jump to get to life. 
Well, if we can understand the physics, if we can understand the chemistry, now we can begin to understand biology. After all, biology is just the application of the various biochemical laws. Sitting there in the table, you are a collection of proteins and fats and carbohydrates, all of which behave according to well-described chemical laws and physical properties. So all I need is a computer big enough and I can explain everything about you. Well, if you take a group of people together, all of which can be explained by laws of biology, biochemistry, and physics, apply more math and more mathematical models, well, now we can understand social sciences, economics, politics, psychology. And so what we have is this idea that man's reason can explain more and more of the questions that we face. So, if man's reason can explain more and more of the questions, then why in the world do we need the Bible? It seems like man's reason is getting better and better. Next slide. You see, and that's the real question. The question isn't so much science versus the Bible. The question is, where do we get our source of absolute truth? Where do we get our source of understanding? Is truth determined by man's ability to figure things out, or is ultimate truth determined by God's revelation? In other words, will I refuse to believe something is true if I can't understand it and I can't figure it out? That's what we face. And so we've got a problem. And if you think that this was just something that was going on in the the time of Galileo, I just want to turn back the clock a couple of weeks. If you've been watching the news at all, you've noticed that was the sign to move forward. Um, we, We live in a day today where science, you can see on the left where everything is tested, the the scientific method, the things that I do in the lab. You have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you look at the results, and then you change your ideas based on your observations. Faith and religion is this idea, you get an idea, you're ignoring everything else and you keep your idea forever. That somehow being a person of faith means you can't look at science, you can't look at hypotheses. As I said, this is more than just an academic exercise. Go ahead, next slide. How many of you know who Stephen Hawking is? Stephen Hawking is a famous physicist from England. He wrote uh, Brief History in Time. Um, really smart guy. Basically, for years he's been working with theoretical physics. And in early September of this year, well, this month, actually just about three weeks ago, he published a book. And in it, using physics, and using modern physics, things that go beyond atoms back down to like string theory and quantum mechanics stuff that you guys haven't covered quite yet in high school, basically what he begins to show is that God is totally unnecessary. That we now can explain the origin of the universe with nothing more than an understanding of our current physical laws. Next slide. In, in, in reference to the question, why is man here, and 
does, you know, is there the need for a Bible? Is there need for a creator? He answers, that is not the answer of modern science. As recent advances in cosmology suggest, the laws of gravity and quantum theory allow universes to appear spontaneously from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. What he's saying is that if we take a a, a full understanding of our current concepts of matter, of physics, of light and time, that you can go back and find out that, well, it just exists because physics says it should exist. Now notice the last, his last quote. Although we are puny and insignificant on the scale of the cosmos, this makes us, in a sense, the lords of creation. And there is the critical question. You see, the question really is not even so much, as I said, science versus the Bible. The question isn't so much man's reason versus God's revelation. The question really is, who's in charge? Who is the one who is ultimately in control? Is it God? Or is it man? That's the question. And so we have four answers to this. When we take the idea of science in the Bible, there's four ways we can handle this. Option number one. Next slide. Option number one... Oh, we need, to de- we need to define a couple of things. What's a religion? A religion is the belief and worship of a god or gods or a set of beliefs concerning the origin and purpose of the universe. See, part of the problem that Hawking does, and I'm just using his as an example for many, many modern scientists who, expl- who are using science to explain the origin of the universe, you're now taking science outside of its proper sphere. You see, it's not the role of science to tell you the whys. Science tells you the whats. Science tells you the hows and the whens. It is a religion that talks about the beliefs concerning the origin and purpose of the universe. Really, Stephen Hawking is describing the religion of modern science. Not science itself. You see, what science does is it makes an observation. Science then tests that observation and determines whether it is true or false. That's what science does. Science does not tell you why. Science can tell you that the universe does exist. Science can't answer the question why it exists. And what Stephen Hawking and many modern scientists are confusing the two. It's one thing to believe in a theory that explains how things go. It's another to try to use that theory to explain why things go the way they go. And so, we find ourselves in two separate spheres again. Science and the Bible. What do we do with it? Next slide. Well, option number one would be to hold that science is true. And that the Bible is false. That if we look at the world around us and we see our observations, where science contradicts the Bible, the science science must be true and the Bible is false. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, as we'll see in a little bit, 
nowhere does the Bible make a scientifically inaccurate statement. The Bible never says that E equals MC cubed, for example. The Bible does not say that the human has two hearts. The Bible does not say that if you take hydrogen and oxygen and mix it together, you'll make crazy glue. Okay? The Bible is nowhere scientifically inaccurate. The other problem with is if, if we say that the science is true and the Bible is false, science can't explain morals. Science can't explain meaning. You see, right now, we all have an understanding of the fact that there is something that is right and there are things that are wrong. Science can't explain that. Science can tell you how to make a gun that you can shoot somebody to kill somebody. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Science can't answer that. And so, if we try to rely everything on science, we are left with a meaningless life, and we are left with a life without morals, and that contradicts our observations. Because we observe universal morality. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has the same morals, but everybody has morals. Where do they come from? My eyes observe that following the scientific method. Therefore, there must be something that gives that meaning. So even the scientific method would discredit science as being the ultimate source of truth. There's just too many questions that science does not answer. So what's our next option? Let's go to the next slide. Well, perhaps the option should be that the Bible is true and that science is false. And many Christians will take this view. And so what happens is, is you'll see people, Christians, trying to use the Bible as a science book. Well, that doesn't work either. Okay? The Bible does not tell us, uh, Martin Luther said this, the Bible does not tell us how the heavens go. The Bible tells us how to go to heaven. And yet what happens is, you'll see people, and I don't mean to discredit people, but they'll make these outlandish claims of how a, a close study of Genesis shows that if you take snakes and put them in a hermetically sealed box, raise the pressure, lower the oxygen, all of a sudden all these poisonous snakes become non-poisonous, therefore creation happens. And you'll see them make these outlandish claims of, no, the Bible, you know, the Big Bang, no, that can't actually be true. And it's just bad science in trying to force the Bible to be the ultimate source of all truth. Now, the Bible is true. But there are true things that aren't necessarily in the Bible. Okay? What is your name? Is that true? It's not in the Bible. So there is truth outside of the Bible. There's nothing wrong with saying that the Bible is true, but not all truth is in the Bible. And we do the Bible a great disservice if we try to make it say more than it does. The Bible is more of a history textbook than it is a science textbook. The Bible tells you that the world was created. 
It doesn't tell you how the world was created. The Bible tells you that miracles occurred, not how the miracle occurs. And we, we are using the Bible in a way that it was not intended to be used. If we try to go to this book, which contains true history, and try to use it to explain how Jesus rose from the dead. It's just not in there. It was never intended to be in there. And that was the problem that Galileo faced with the early church. You see, those verses that we saw there before, that's poetry. The Psalms and Ecclesiastes, those are all poetry. And those are metaphors for a truth. You don't read poetry in order to find out a literal physical description. That's the basic definition of poetry. If, even today, if you were to go to the Royal College Observatory in London, England, which is the center of, of science in England, and you go and you want to find out you know, when the day begins and the way the day ends, you know what they call the beginning of the day? Sunrise. And sunset. We still use terms like the sun rises and the sun sets. Why? Well, because we understand the sun's not actually rising. We don't say earth rotation point. We say sunrise. We say sunset. Why? Because it's a metaphor. It's an explanation for the phenomenon that we observe, but we recognize the science behind it is different. If you go through the Psalms, it talks about the God having breath from a nostril. Well, do you really think God stands up in heaven and blows out his nose in order to destroy the nations around Israel? No. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. And the problem was, the church under the Pope had gotten itself into the position where it couldn't be infallible. And rather than recognize, you know what, we made a mistake, that's poetry, it's a metaphor, they boxed themselves into a corner. You see, you've got to understand the Bible for the purposes to which it was written. Which brings us to the third possibility. Next slide. The next slide tells us, well, what if we accept the science is true in its sphere, and the Bible is true in its sphere, and we just keep the two of them very separate? After all, science tells us what's going on here and now. Science is concerned with space and time. The Bible tells us about morals and about what is good and tells us about spiritual things. Tells us how we should live our life. Well, the problem with that is, is there's too much overlap. What about economics? Does the Bible have anything to say about how we should run a business? Well, actually it does. What about psychology? Does the Bible tell us anything about the nature of man and what's going on in his heart? Well, yeah, it does. But I thought psychology was science. Well, kind of maybe. And so we see we're going to get into the problem if we try to draw this great dividing line between the two because the fact of the matter is the Bible tends to speak to everything. It speaks to some things more frequently than others. But you can't put the Bible on one side and science on another. The Bible has too much to say about many things that science and reason would say is its turf. So that doesn't work. So what are we left with? Number four. Next slide. So what we have to realize is the Bible is the ultimate source of truth. 
The Bible is true. And it has something to say about everything. There is no area of our existence that does not come under the authority of the Bible. Whether it's science, physics, mathematics, psychology, politics, child-rearing, and discipline. Lots on discipline. The Bible has something to say about all of it. But, the Bible is not the only place where we can find truth. We can look at the world around us. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the handiwork of God. We are told to look at the universe around us. Why? Because as we look at the universe around us, we learn more about God. How do we know how big God is? Well, the Bible says God's big. It uses the word big. But that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's only when you look up into the heavens and you realize, wow, that's pretty big. Now we begin to get a picture of the truth of God's bigness. When we talk about God's power, how does the Bible tell us about God's power? You know how? By pointing us to natural phenomena. It wants us to observe. Jesus may have been the first person to actually write down the scientific method. When Thomas came to him, after Jesus had died and been resurrected, and Thomas didn't believe, what did Jesus say to him? Touch me. Test me. And see if your assumption is real. And if your assumption has been proved wrong, then you can believe the contra-assumption. He said it in different terms. Touch me and believe. You see, that's the scientific method. There's nothing wrong with thinking. There's nothing wrong with observing. But we do so under the guise of the Bible. The Bible is the one that gives us the boundaries. The Bible is the one that gives us the landmarks of what is right and what is wrong. And within that, God has given us a mind to understand things. Why? Because in understanding things, we understand God better. And science answers questions that the Bible does not. So then what do we do with the two big problems? What do we do with creation? Well, there's nothing in the Bible that would say that the Big Bang didn't happen. Okay? The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom! That sounds like it would be a pretty big boom. God said, let there be light. Boom! That's a whole lot of light. You see, if you go through the account of creation in Genesis, there's nothing in Genesis that would say that God didn't start the Big Bang. The Bible tells us that we were created in six periods of time. They can be days. Absolutely they can be days. They can be really, really long, hundred thousand million year periods of time. The Bible is not specific. The Bible says things reproduce after its own kind. But it doesn't say what a kind is. There's nothing in the Bible that says one horse couldn't have evolved into another horse. All you have to do is look around at the room, and if you have whites, blacks, Asians, those are three different basic people groups, where did they all come from if there's no evolution? Small e, evolution. Change. Adaptation. The Bible is not against that. Science nowhere has any evidence of evolution from fish to bird. Science has no evidence to say that the Big Bang didn't occur. So the two are not incompatible. The Bible allows that. What do we do with miracles? Well, 
Just because you can't explain a miracle doesn't mean it didn't happen. That's like the person who is looking for his keys. It's the middle of the night. They uh, lost their keys, and so you talk to them, and they're looking under a streetlight. And you ask them, why are you looking at your keys under the streetlight? Your car's parked over there. Well, I'm looking under the streetlight because this is where all the light is. That's ridiculous. The keys could be anywhere. Well, the fact that we can't necessarily understand something doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. There's all sorts of things we can't explain right now. The question is, do we trust God to tell us the truth when he tells us? And that's the ultimate question. Last slide. You see, the bottom line is, is where do you find your ultimate truth? Who's ultimately the smart one? You or God? Are we really going to say that we are smart enough to be able to explain everything and that if man or a group of men cannot figure it out, therefore it must not be true? Are we really going to say that man, who has really never gone any farther than the moon, despite what all our, all our writings and science fiction would tell us, are we really going to think that man has all the answers? You see, that's what Paul was talking about in Romans. For that which can be known about God is made plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This next part sounds very familiar. For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see, there really is nothing incompatible between the Bible and science. What's incompatible is my desire to be God and God's fact as God. That's the problem. And those two are incompatible. You can't be God if God is God. So the real question you need to ask yourself is who's in ultimate control? Who's ultimately in charge of things? Is it me? Or is it God? Personally, as a scientist, I think it's a whole lot smarter to think that God is in control than I'm in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you are not in a box far away somewhere, but that you have made yourself known. We thank you for the universe and how it shows various aspects of who you are and your greatness. Lord, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes. I pray that you would continue to give us the ability and the boldness to proclaim the truth when so many people around us would try to tell us that it's wrong. I pray that we would not be afraid to stand up and say, no, I believe that the Bible is true. Lord, so that many people might come to know who you are and worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And you're just... Let's thank Dr. Robert for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to, want to remind you guys, uh, for those that are T-group leaders, we're having a meeting just after the service. Just stay, stay after for that. Everyone else, we'll see you guys on Wednesday. Thanks for coming.